everything changed um, because I felt love for myself. And what I realized after, uh, you know, writing the book and talking to thousands of people about forgiveness is that we don't know how to feel love and compassion for ourselves. We're not taught that. Most of us aren't taught that. It's very, very rare even for parents today to purposefully teach their children how to express love and tenderness and compassion towards the self. Um, and that was the first time in my life that I'd ever felt it. I literally spent every moment pr- that I remember, and this is obviously is not true because when we're tiny, we're innocent, but I hated myself. And that's the only feeling I knew. That's the only relationship I had with Emily was absolute contempt and hatred for myself. That was Emily Hooks, and this is The Share Podcast. It's time for The Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Share Podcast, and today we have Emily J. Hooks joining us on the show, and what an amazing story Emily has. Emily is the author of The Power of Forgiveness, and also the founder of the Forgiveness Academy. She's an amazing woman who helps thousands of people today change their lives through the power of forgiveness. But prior to becoming an author, a public speaker, a forgiveness coach, and the founder of the Forgiveness Academy, her life was a complete disaster. Emily was a heavy methamphetamine user and surrounded herself with some of the most dangerous people you could even imagine and put herself and her family at great risk. Today, Emily goes into detail about her horrific battle with drug addiction and her amazing and transformational journey into recovery. You do not want to miss this episode. It is absolutely breathtaking. So let's dive into Emily's story. But first, a quick message from our sponsor, Organifi. Organifi is an organic superfood supplement that takes 30 seconds to make with no blending, no juicing, and no cleanup. Organifi is a coconut and ashwagandha infused green juice that is gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, vegan, and absolutely delicious. My wife and I drink it every single day. We absolutely love it. We've noticed a significant difference in reduced stress, in improved digestion, improved mental clarity, and it boosts our energy levels. So not only is it organic and upgraded with 11 superfoods, if you order now, you're going to get 20% off your order by using promo code SHARE, S-H-A-I-R. So go to the Organifi website, www.organifi.com. Organifi is spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I. And make sure to put in your promo code SHARE, S-H-A-I-R, and get 20% off your order today. And guys, a quick reminder to please remember to subscribe to the Share Podcast. If you have an iPhone and you listen on iTunes, make sure to click subscribe when you listen to the show. You're going to get a brand new episode downloaded onto your phone every week with a little reminder that lets you know that the Share Podcast just launched its latest episodes. Plus, it's the best way to rank on iTunes. When you subscribe to a show, it increases your ranking in iTunes. And my goal is to have the Share Podcast as the number one recovery resource and podcast in iTunes. So please, subscribe 
And while you're at it, leave us a five-star rating and review so I can read it on the next episode of The Share Podcast. And speaking of iTunes reviews, I've got a spectacular one for you guys right now. And this one comes from Shauna Beeves. And she writes, love it. As someone who suffers from social anxiety, The Share Podcast has helped me tremendously. When I first quit drinking, the thought of walking into a meeting terrified me. I scoured the internet to read the stories of recovering alcoholics and addicts. My husband discovered the Share Podcast and told me that I'd love it. Boy, was he right. I immediately began binge listening to multiple episodes daily. I started learning tools and became familiar with different paths of recovery and the inner workings of programs such as AA. Since I no longer had a fear of the unknown, I actually felt comfortable enough to go to a meeting, and then another, and another. Never in a million years would I have imagined getting the nerve up before. I've only gone to a few, but I'm proud I got my foot in the door even though I sat silently. I'm still too scared to speak in front of others, but guess what? There's a private share podcast addiction recovery group on Facebook. Another godsend for people like myself. I can communicate with others, give and receive support without feeling pressure. It is a great community of caring people and seeing the post on my feed keeps me motivated. I'm so grateful for the Share Podcast and Facebook group for helping me on this journey. On July 19th, I will have eight months. It blows my mind from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, O. Give yourself a big pat on the back because you're helping a lot of people kick addiction's butt. HP, baby. Oh, my God. It's just it's just too much. I, I'm, I'm overwhelmed and over the moon and so grateful. Shauna, thank you for that amazing and heartfelt review. That's what keeps this whole thing going. And it's on a daily basis. I'm connected with so many people now on that Facebook private group. And, you know, I haven't mentioned it before because I don't like to mention people that are in the private Facebook group by name. But I'm, I'm truly moved by the people that are in there doing this just tremendous amount of service. So I'm only going to read their first name. So if you're in there and you're struggling, here's the people that you can reach out to. Jude W., Derek S., Joe B., Gabrielle R., Nora Q., Craig M., Damian W., Rebecca B., Rebecca M., Sally C., Christopher Lee. I wish I could list more, but there's just not enough time, and these people are just standouts. They're unbelievable. They do so much service, and I just want to express my love and gratitude for each and every one of you, and I know that the other members in there feel exactly the same way I do. I cannot do this alone. I need your help and we're doing it. God bless you guys. HP baby. So if you're struggling out there and you haven't joined the Facebook private group yet, then please get over to Facebook, go to the search bar, type in S-H-A-I-R, share, private, group, and jump in there. We're waiting for you. And for those of you that continue to support the Share Podcast with your donations, Thank you from the bottom of my heart. It's amazing. They've actually started to come in a little bit more. (laughs) So thank you guys, all of you, for for donating and supporting the show. And little by little, it becomes easier and easier to support the show 100%. But we're not quite there yet. And if just 1% of our listener base would donate $5 a month to the Share Podcast, we'd be completely self-supporting. So if you've got the wherewithal to do so and you love the podcast, then please go to the Share Podcast website and start donating $5 a month to the Share Podcast 
today. Now a quick message from Transitions Daily and then on to the show. Would you like to join a free anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Then go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Hey, Emily, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's absolutely a pleasure to be here. I love your show. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Oh, man, I love it. So how are you feeling today? I'm feeling very, very grateful. I'm grateful to be here, and I've had a great day. So thanks for being a part of it with me and allowing it for me to be a part of it with you. Absolutely. It's my pleasure, and it's also an honor and a privilege. We are off to a great start. So folks, today we have Emily Hooks joining us on the Share Podcast, and Emily is the author of The Power of Forgiveness, A Guide to Healing and Wholeness. Emily is a forgiveness coach and the founder of the Forgiveness Academy. Her mission is to share the power of forgiveness with each and every one of us. Emily did not earn a PhD and study human behavior for 20 years to get where she is today. Instead, she forgave herself. And as a result, everything in her life transformed. Does that sound about right? That sounds exactly right. (laughs) Wonderful. So first of all, tell us a little bit about what your normal daily routine looks like, including recovery. Yes, absolutely. There is. You're you're right. I am extremely busy since the book came out. Um, and frankly, the, the writing and, and the publication process of that has been one of the biggest challenges I've faced in my career. Uh, so the last nine months, while from the outside looks amazing, it's actually been um, challenging and it's required that I up my self-care game significantly. Um, so, you know, I meditate every day. I pray every day, many, many times every day. <laughs> um, and I make a point, um, more so than I ever have to cultivate and really nurture the relationships in my life because, um, that's where I get the fire, the fire to, to fuel my motivation. I got you. People, people ask, why do you do what I, what you do? And there are many answers to that question, but one of the answers is to build, um, security and beauty and comfort for my son and his family. So, um, I try to make sure that everybody around me knows how much I love them and how much I appreciate them. Now, this whole concept of being a forgiveness coach Forgive me, but it's the first time I've heard of it. (laughs) I made it up. (laughs) Okay, excellent. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Innovation at its finest. Yes. So tell me how you tell us, tell us how you came up with that. You know, the idea for, you know, becoming a forgiveness coach and the book and what you do. You know, it's actually kind of a a miraculous story. Um, I'll back up just a little bit so you have some context. Um, I've been clean in recovery for 15 years and, um, a lot of that was just building security and stability in my life. Um, about four years ago, I decided to get my MBA. So, uh, I left all my stability and security and I went and did that. And after I graduated, there were a lot of personal changes in my life, a breakup, my son moved back home. Um, and so, um, I, I wasn't, I didn't find the job that I was looking for because I was handling a lot of other things. 
And I was in a book club with some with some people that I know through my church, actually. And we were reading a book called The Four Spiritual Laws of Prosperity. And one of the laws is forgiveness. And we started talking about it in the book club. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not my understanding of forgiveness. This is what I this is what I believe forgiveness is. And at the end of the meeting, one of the women came up to me and said, would you help me forgive my mother? And I said, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I was working as a freelance writer at the time and I had some flexibility. So we started walking around Town Lake and downtown Austin. Um, and as a result of those conversations, I wrote a curriculum and the book within a few months. So it was one of those sort of things that, you know, just happens. Yep. It just flow. It just flowed out of me. And what's interesting is I I've, I lived forgiveness. It, it is the foundation of of my recovery and has been for 15 years. But I'd never had a conversation with anybody about it. So I had all of this sort of comprehensive and thorough knowledge and understanding of the process that I went through and 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 I've read many 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 books about it not specifically about forgiveness but spiritual texts and the big book and lots of resources um, and so you know here I am now all, and I talk about forgiveness all of the time I travel around the US and speak on it I do workshops I work with individuals and groups and it's like I've known it forever uh, so it's fascinating that, you know, the reality is I started having this conversation 18 months ago. 18 months ago? Yeah. Uh, how long did it, did it take you to write the book? Two months. Oh, my God. I know. <laughs> it's, it's truly, truly a miracle. And, yeah. um, and, you know, I read the book and, you know, this is not at all a vanity statement. And, and I cry sometimes because I'm just like, wow, where did that come from? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, who knows that? <laughs> you know, I'd never, I'd never thought about it the way that it's, it's written in the book until it was written. And now it's just, you know, my sister came to one of the workshops that I did a, about a month ago and she's like, it's like, you've been doing it forever. Yeah. There's, there are no questions that I can't answer. Um, and so it was always in there just, you know, as a result of my personal practice, it just wasn't ready to come out until last year. Wow. Wow. It, uh, there's so much divine intervention that happens in our lives. And for you, it was just a, a big epiphany that allowed you to just run with it and, and accomplish such a, a, a huge task that so many of us want to do. And you did it in two months, which is, as far as I'm concerned, you know, higher power. You know, yeah. it, it's it's in there, right? You're just, yeah. you're, you're seeking. We're all seeking. The, the, whenever we're in a quandary, the first thing many of us here is go inside. <laughs> right. Seek the answers they are within. And you're like, what? <laughs> yeah. But but that yeah. is that is it's so true. It's all right there. If we can just tap into it. And which is let me just lead into the next question because that's really important as well. You touched on it a little bit, but it seems like you you're probably pretty connected. So how do you maintain your spiritual condition? That conscious contact with the higher power? Well, <clears throat> over the years, it has sort of become the framework through which I live. Um, and so it's where I start. Um, you know, everything else that happens in life happens through that filter for me at this point in my life, which doesn't mean I go around, you know, 
speaking about it all the time, but it's what drives the decision making um, and the choices. Even the tr- even the the data sets that I work with are all filtered through my faith and through my understanding of. Uh, what's true and right for me uh, in the world. And I'd like to be clear, you know, I don't know what's true and right for another person. I just know um, that my body and and my spirit tells me very clearly when something is right and when something is wrong. Um, so that's, you know, that's how it is. And I, you know, I, I, I nurture that with um, community, faith community and with uh, meditation and prayer and reading. I read, I've read pretty much every spiritual text that's ever been written, <laughs> uh, truly. Um, uh, right now I'm reading a book called A Course of Love, which is uh, similar to a sequel to A Course in Miracles. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and that's deepening my understanding, you know. Um, so I count on, I count on those uh, those resources that are out there to help deepen my faith and, and, and guide me. Beautifully said, beautifully said. So tell us how old you were the first time you drank or used drugs, and more importantly, how did they make you feel? So um, I'd like to just set that up by talking a little bit about what happened in my childhood, um, because it'll, it'll make, uh, make this um, even more poignant, I think, for the listeners. So when I was a little girl, when I was seven, my father kidnapped me and uh, took me out of the country and hid me from my family for three and a half years. Um, during that time, he was abusive. He was not a well man. Um, and um, nor was his family. And um, his family inflicted essentially psychological torture on my mother during that time. Um, uh, laws changed. So at the time, this was in 1979, it wasn't illegal for a mother or a father to essentially abduct a child. Uh, but that changed in March of 1982. And in May of 1982, felony kidnapping charges were brought up, brought up against my father. And I, my mother came to the UK uh, on July 4th, actually, in 1982 and kidnapped me back, which was a very heroic and beautiful thing to do um, and quite adventurous. There was a night in jail and police chases and all of these, these great stories to write about. But the impact on me uh, was significant, as you can imagine. Um, I left a life that I knew two, two, two times with the clothes on my back in 12 years. Um, so I came back to the U S and, um, I wasn't, I never was able really to reintegrate. Um, my mother and I had some very real challenges in our relationship. In fact, her relationship drove most of the decision-making that I made up through, um, me getting clean 15 years ago. Basically I was trying to make her pay for, um, for, my perception of the mistakes that happened as a child. And I think that's a really, really common thing that happens for people, for addicts in particular. Um, so um, the first time I drank was New Year's Eve. Uh, and I think I was 14. And I drank to the point of being completely obliterated. Uh, I have but my sister was there and she threw me in a cold shower and I kept trying to jump off some, a, a cliff and get, jump into the lake. And 
it was it was a, a grand start to a long career. <laughs> um, and, at, you know, at that point, everything changed because I didn't feel the existential pain and confusion of living that I'd felt for since I was seven. You know, I mean, you can't it's hard to, you know, really allow ourselves to get present to the terror that a seven-year-old would feel being in a different country with a crazy man. And don't get me wrong, my father loved me and, um, and he, you know, he did his best, but um, he was just not a well person. And I was terrified. I, I wanted my mother desperately as a seven-year-old would. Um, and that's the pain that I felt uh, up until that moment. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty heavy. <laughs> yeah. So here's what I'd like to do at this point, Emily. I'd like to turn the show over to you and I want you to share your story with us. Okay. Uh, the battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life when you hit rock bottom, and then finally your journey into recovery up until today. And I'd like you to include the part in your life where you realize that you needed to forgive yourself. So obviously that's going to be, you know, right at, at the end of your story um, so mm -hmm. that we can get a better idea of where all the, you know, the concept for the book comes from. All right. So Emily, take it away. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I just want to start by saying this is not a story that I've ever really told before. So we're just going to see where it goes together. <laughs> all right. Just yeah. bring some higher power in here and he'll guide you through it. Yes, indeed. So um, after uh, that initial New Year's Eve, uh, I very quickly started discovering all of the possibilities with regard to uh, not feeling the pain that I felt. And I tried everything uh, very, you know, as soon as I found out about it, if I could get access to it, I would try it. Um, I, you know, I started smoking weed and I smoked weed for m most of my uh, childhood and a early, uh, early adult life. Um, in high school, uh, I was introduced to meth for the first time. And it was, that was, you know, we all have that thing, right? That That's <laughs> like, oh, this is what it feels like to be invincible. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So that was, that was, that was what it was for me. And um, I, in between my junior and senior year, I fell deeply, deeply off the deep end with my best friend at the time. Um, we, I lived in my car. This was the first time I was homeless. Um, and, uh, just sought and sought and sought, um, more, uh, more drugs. That's all I wanted was just more meth. And, um, uh, it was, we were approaching the end of the summer, and, uh, we decided that we were going to go down to the high school and spray paint. Um, and so, gosh, I hope, I hope she doesn't get mad at me for telling this story. I guess I, I just won't mention her name. But <laughs> yeah. For, no, let's just change the names to, to protect the innocent here, yeah, but tell the story. <laughs> so, so, you know, we'd been up probably for a week. I don't know how long, Easily. you know, in the stories of my mind, it's a month, but I probably wasn't that long. So we, we got some spray paint and somehow it was easy to get back then. And we drove up to the high school. It was probably a week before school was supposed to start. And I started spray painting on the sidewalk in front. Um, and this is so cliche, but rock and roll high school. That's what I was, that's what I was spray painting. Very, very large. 
uh, on at the entrance of the high school. And, you know, it wouldn't be a great story if the cops didn't pull into the parking lot. So the cops pull into the parking lot and pull up behind the car. We saw we saw them. Um, and so we ran over to the car and threw the stuff in the back of the car and got in and they walked up. And but they didn't see the graffiti. Um, they just saw us acting, you know, um, like we were up to no good. Right. And I, I grew up in a uh, in a small town, and so I, he didn't even ask for our ID or anything. But somehow he knew who we were. So later, uh, he obviously found the the graffiti and uh, issued warrants for our arrests through the through the through the. Uh, judges, I don't know which judge it was, but anyway, and this sort of um, was a technique in a small town in the United States to get us to get us in there. And so there was a warrant for my arrest, supposedly, and we went into the judge's office and they did an intervention and they said, either you go to jail or you go to rehab. So in, um, I think it was September of 1988, I went to rehab for the first time and, uh, uh, it was, you know, one of those old school rehabs, like a, you know, like a hospital and we, you know, I had to wear paper for like a week cause they thought I was going to fly. And my best friend actually opted to go with me, which was really, really interesting. Um, and, so she she came in with me. She didn't. She wasn't. Um, she wasn't coerced into going, but she did go. Uh, and she was in there for probably twenty five or thirty days, I'm guessing. And I I stayed in whatever the maximum amount of time was. And uh, they didn't really release me with, with much optimism. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was I was a broken a broken spirit at that point in my life, and I really. Um, I was really, really lost. Uh, so I got out and I got high within the first 24 hours. Um, uh, and then I kind of realized that, you know, I needed to make a major change. So I heard an ad on the radio for, uh, a job in California selling magazines. And so I responded to the ad and I drove to, a hotel room to interview, uh, for this job. And they said, sure, absolutely. We'd love to hire you. I was, uh, I just turned 18. You had to be 18 to, to do it. My best friend was 17 still at the time. And she said, well, I'll, I'll come after I turn 18. And so they said, yes, well, you'll, you'll live in a hotel with all the other people that sell magazines and, um, we'll give you money for a bus ticket. So, that was my break. And let me just back up and say during the time between rehab and leaving, uh, which I think I left in July, uh, the, the next year, um, uh, we got into hallucinogens. So we did, I, I did tons and tons of LSD during this time. And I started, um, losing my mind a little bit, I think. And, and as happens when you, when you do that much of something like that in a short period of time, uh, and ecstasy and that kind of stuff, which was, that was new for me. Um, uh, so I get on a bus and I take the bus out to California and the, the company that I worked for, the guy that I worked for, his name was Bobby Unger. He was from the streets of Philly. He drove a gold Jaguar with a license plate that said, why are you poor? Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> he was a big guy, like six seven, gold pinky ring, gold chains around his neck. He was like a pimp, but you know, like know, a maybe, pimp. Maybe he was a pimp. I don't know. <laughs> That's the picture I'm getting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, all I did was sell magazines in parking lots, but there were a lot of pretty young people and attractive young people that lived in the hotel and. Uh, you know, the, the, the front was at least that we sold magazines mm-hmm. and one of the policies was no drugs. Uh, so it was really, really helpful. It was exactly what I needed actually. Um, so you know, I stayed out there for a few months and I did that and, uh, it really got me back on my feet. Uh, just, just breaking the cycle, you know, it's, you can't, I can't you can't overstate, just how powerful that can be when you're, when, when it's, and all you need is a moment, just a moment of clarity. And, and then you take a bold action and it can make such a difference in, in, in our lives. Um, and I'm not short on bold action. So, um, <laughs> so I did that for a few months. Go ahead. No, no, it's absolutely true. That's one of the things that I always say. There is that fleeting moment in your life where mm-hmm. a light bulb goes on and when it happens, you need to take action immediately. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Just it, that is, that's one of the many ways God communicates with us is just, Hey, here's an opportunity. Yep. So I did that for a couple months and I got homesick. And so I came back to Texas. I, you know, I'm, I'm basically from Texas and I moved in with my sister and I got a job and then I got pregnant with my son who is 26 now. And obviously that changed my life in really big ways. Um, uh, he's absolutely the best thing I've ever done. So mm. yeah, he's, he's my angel. Um, yeah, I understand. <laughs> I got yeah. one of those too. <laughs> yeah. It's like, wow, you're, you're a big ball of miracles and, and, <laughs> and uh, blessings and opportunities to learn. Yeah, they are. So, um, so he was born and, uh, I worked, Lots of jobs when he first when he first came along, mostly waiting tables and that kind of stuff. I smoked a lot of weed when he was young. Um, drank quite a bit actually during that time, um, but I was you know I was functioning pretty well. You know, I pretty well. I mean, not certainly not to my potential, um, <laughs> but I was managing uh, well enough for nobody to you know be really really mad at me, which I guess was my metric. Uh, so I did that for a few years, and then. I- uh, we started moving a lot. So one of the consequences of the trauma that happened in my childhood is that um, I get ants in my pants very easily and I am constantly wanting to relocate. And actually, I calculated it. I think um, in the first 10 years of my son's life, we moved like 23 times or something like that. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> Not the most stable environment, but um, we were best friends. So that helped. So uh, I got ants in my pants and we moved a few times and we ended up moving back to my hometown, which I hadn't been back to since, um, since I, you know, I left for California and I was doing a lot of drugs and it was, it was, um, not a good idea. Um, and of course I didn't know that at the time we did it for financial reasons. We're closer to my parents and no, I was a single mom. It's, it was not easy to be a single mom. And I also wanted to start college. So we moved back to my hometown and I started uh, studying geology and environmental science at uh, um, a university not too far away. And I very slowly started sort of uh, 
uh, ramping up on the on the alcohol and 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 weed consumption. And then when I was 27, I believe 26 or 27, I met a younger man, a younger guy. He was 21 at the time. Very very good looking, and um, wild and crazy. He was from out of town and. And we started hanging out and dating. And he went during the time we were together. He got he went down to Mexico, and got arrested, and ended up spending like five months, four months in a Mexican prison. Ooh. Yeah, I went down and, and visited him down there. Talk about oh my god, a nightmare, a nightmare. He so during that time, the reason this is relevant. Did you take your son? Uh, no, <laughs> no, oh, no. Thank God, no, 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 no. I, I had to ask. No, 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 no. So during that time, he got addicted to, to heroin. Um, and I, you know, the environment he was in is practically indescribable. Uh, there, was, there was no furniture. You know, the, the prisons down there are guarded by prisoners with machine guns. So it's basically a giant facility for organized crime. And he was the probably one of the very, very few non-Mexicans in, in the prison. And he was a young, attractive man. So I don't know all the details, but I do know he got addicted to heroin while he was there. And when he got out, he came back to stay with me and my son. And um, he started at that point uh, doing uh, meth. And I hadn't seen or touched meth since I left for before I left for California when I was 18. One of the moments in time that really has had the biggest impact in my life was the moment that I decided to shoot up for the first time. And prior to writing this book, I was writing a memoir about my life. I'm still working on it uh, and on the back burner. But this moment in time is one of the reasons that I stopped writing that because what I realized, you know, people want to know, you know, this happened, why it happened and what it led to. And the reality is if, if we're honest with ourselves, the reason that we do things, it's never that simple. Um, there are always, many, many reasons why we do the things that we do. And after a lot of reflection and willingness to explore that moment in time, which I can see as clear as day in my mind's eye right now, um, there were many reasons, at least eight different reasons that I did it. Some of them spiritual, you know, I, you know, I had legitimate conscious spiritual decision-making going on. And I also had codependency going on. And I also had real fear about what was going on in my life. And my son had just turned seven and looking back on it many, many years later, after I started recovery, I realized of course I was terrified. I didn't know how to parent a seven-year-old, right? I'd I don't know what the life of a normal seven-year-old looks like. I've never lived it. Um, so there was a lot going on in that moment in time. But as much as he didn't want me to do it, I was adamant that I wanted to do it. I was super crystal clear, no pun intended, that, <laughs> that, I, that I wanted to shoot up. Um, and so I did. We did. We did it wrong. He heated it up the first time. And it crystallized. It was terrible, painful. And um but we learned quickly how to do it together. And uh, my life just fell apart very, very, very quickly after that. Um, my parents took custody of my son within a year. I was homeless. Uh, I had lost all of my possessions to my drug dealer. Um, whatever his name is, was gone. And I was living in my car and uh, just basically bouncing around searching for dope. Um, and I lived in parking lots and rest stops and random people's houses trying to stay awake to be safe. And I, got, I can't tell you how many times I got robbed. 
um, you know, because I would fall asleep and, you know, really right. every time I fell asleep, somebody robbed me essentially, which is why my car was often a better option, but you can't get dope in your car. <laughs> right? You have to be with people. So, um, so I met some extraordinarily dangerous people during this time and, um, you know, um, they were my people. They were my people. And I'll tell you, one of the biggest gifts that I have from this period in my life uh, is that I learned what empathy is. And that's one of the five mm. competencies that I teach in my book. If you believe there's something you're not capable of doing, you're just, you're just fooling yourself. You're just fooling yourself because you don't know what you would do if, you, if, you're, if the circumstances of your life were different. And these people that I was with had extraordinarily tragic, tragic lives. I mean, there was one, one guy that I hung out with who was born into a satanic cult. He was having sex with his mother and doing heroin by the, by, by the age of six. Oh, my God. What do you expect from, a pers- from that person? You know? you know, people think that they're different than the people that scare them the most. And the reality is they're only different by the circumstances of their life, not by their humanity. We're all exactly the same kind of human. Wow. So that's, you know, that's the kind of people I spent, you know, the next three and a half years with. And, um... Let's see, in 1999, um, I decided that I needed to die. I wanted to die. I tried many times to kill myself. I was, I, I almost died overdosing, shooting up uh, cocaine um, earlier that year. It was um, a terrifying experience. Um, but after my parents took custody of my son, uh, I tried multiple times to commit suicide. The first time I blew the pilot light in the, in the, on the stove in my house out and went to sleep. And during that experience, I left my body and, um, I was floating over my body and my mom and my sister, I mean, my mom and my son walked into the living room and found my dead body. And I got to see their response. Um, and it's hard to talk about, but, um, you know, you can only imagine being able to see the moment when your child finds your your, your dead body. Oh, um, he was, he was, uh, he was not okay. And my mother was both not okay and trying to be okay for him. How old is he? How at the time he was, yep. um, eight, eight or eight oh or nine. God. Now to just keep in mind, oh. this is just a dream. Um, that didn't actually happen. It's a nightmare. That's what it is. Yes. So, you know, I think some people call it a near-death experience. I don't know what the technical qualifications for that are. But so I woke up and I realized at that moment, you know, what drug addicts do is, is and people, you know, they're like, how can you be so selfish? How can you, how can you, you know, not be okay for your kids? And the reality is there's a point in time when you think, when you're really, really, really sure there was a point in time when I was really, really, really crystal clear that he was better off without me um, mm-hmm. and that everybody was better off without me. And even though he had the protection of my parents as, their, as his primary caregiver, even the drama around the mistakes that I was constantly making and the, and the promises I was constantly breaking uh, was, was hurting him. Um, and I was really sure that the world would be better off, that he would be better off if I was gone. And that dream showed me that that wasn't true. <clears throat> so I came back and um, 
who knows? I don't know. I probably stayed clean for 48 hours or something. I can't remember what happened after that. But a few months later, after my parents filed formal um, um, custody papers against me um, and actually had me served in my backyard, um, that moment when that happened, when that when I opened that piece of paper and read the court documents was one of those defining moments when you just you feel like your body is dissipating. You're just, you know, nothing, nothing in the world matters anymore. Uh, and so in August of that year, I drove out to a dry riverbed and um, tried again to kill myself and had what, um, what I would call a near-death experience where I had a conversation with something on in another realm. Um, you know, I, it wasn't really a religious experience because there was no religious symbology. Sim, symbology, is it? Symbolism. Symbolism. Thank you. I was like, that's not quite the right word. Symbolism in it. But uh, there was white light and um, a conversation and an understanding. And the most powerful thing that happened in that moment, and it's the reason that I do the work that I do today, one of the reasons that I do the work that I do today is that I had an experience of absolute peace, where all of the suffering left my body. And I felt like the perfect expression of me um, inside my own skin. And, um, I can, I can remember that like on a constitutional level. And what I believe to be true is that's our potential. That's not only my potential, but it's everybody's potential and forgiveness is how we get there. And so at the end of that conversation, I, um, I was told to come back and I came back and, um, I got in my car, I looked for a pen to write down what had happened. Cause I knew I would forget very, very soon. And I did, I, um, I remember part of it, but I can't remember the conversation, the details of the conversation or really what the entity looked like. And, uh, I couldn't find a pen and I started driving and I called my drug dealer in a complete and utter panic. And I said, I, re- I you know, I don't have any money, but I, I have, you have to help me. You have to help me. You have to help me. And just completely um, fell apart. And she showed up and uh, hooked me up and said, "You got to get your shit together." And I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Then you know, I just, I just, I'll, I'll be better after this." Um, and I got high and started driving again, and you know, kept on, kept on plowing forward. Uh, the ironic and unfortunate thing, well, it's not unfortunate because everything happens as it should. But the ironic thing that happened. About uh, as a result of those failed suicide attempts is I realized that I'd failed at something. I realized that I was going to have to live with the pain of existence um, because I couldn't, I couldn't die. I thought, you know, that's, right. you know, so many addicts think that they're, you know, you know, we think that if we just try hard enough, we'll die. <laughs> right. If we just get high enough, we'll die. You know, it's in the back yes, of our mind. Yes. It's in the back of our mind. You know, we hope for we it. We hope for it. We pray for it. We're waiting for, we it. for it. Yeah. Yes. And it's hard to do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm just telling you, I don't think that we get to choose that. I think there's something else going on. You know, I don't think we get to decide when that happens. And so that created for me and my life, um, an additional sense of powerlessness, ironically. So I started hanging out with even more dangerous people. I thought if I can't do it, then somebody else was bound to do it. I started living in another town. I met uh, a friend uh, who was very wealthy and she let me 
uh, live at her beautiful lake house. And uh, just so happened there was dope everywhere um, around us. There's a lot more to that story, oh, but uh, that's for another time. And so I was kind of living the, the high life, no pun intended, because I was still a junkie. Uh, <laughs> but I had this nice house <laughs> to myself. And, you know, I look like, oh my God. I, you know, it was, it was, I mean, it's better than living in your car, but it didn't last for a terribly long time because she realized at some point that um, I was extremely, extremely broken. So I lived out there for a few months and I met, while I was out there, I met a uh, uh, a lot of very connected and dangerous people. And I don't want to go, you know, too much into all of that for um, maybe obvious reasons. But uh, I started dating a guy and um, he was a, um, a meth cook, uh, one of many in, in a group. And uh, we dated for about a year. And then in, on a fall day in, I think it was 2001, um, I called him stupid. Actually, I s- said, you're so fucking stupid. And he went into a rage that I'd never seen in another person. And my father was a pretty, pretty rageful person. Uh, and he tried to kill me. He came really, really, really clean back to my bed and tied a scarf around my neck. I uh, bit through my tongue and went unconscious. Uh, he thought I was dead. Uh, that's the only reason he stopped. And again, I regained consciousness and the good news about that is it marked the beginning of the end. I'm not sure that I ever shot up after that day. I can't remember doing it. Um, I still I still consumed uh, uh, meth, but I didn't. I think that's probably about the time I stopped. I stopped shooting up. Wow, Jesus! Yeah, yeah. Man, you have got a powerful story. I'm sorry to interrupt there, but I'm just wow. Yeah. Please continue. <laughs> thank you thank you yeah so um a little while after that um uh we were at somebody's house in another town and, and um we had been intimate and after uh that he uh sat on my back and he started drawing on my back with a sharpie and i was sort of in and out of consciousness a little bit and i fell asleep and uh, when I woke up, um, I went uh, over to, I, I stood up and I heard people talking in the living room. Uh, this was a friend of his, um, uh, whose house we were at. And uh, as I walked past the mirror, I turned around, I noticed the drawing on my back and it was, it was like a full body back tattoo. I mean, it was completely, he doodled over the, in, in the expanse of my back, which was tiny because I was like 95 pounds, but still. Oh. Um, and in the middle, it said, treat me like a queen. Oh, and interesting. Yeah. And then I heard the voices in the living room. So I, I tiptoed over to the door and I heard a conversation between him and another man that I didn't know where he tried to sell me to him for money. And the, uh, the other voice who I didn't know said, no, I don't, I don't want her. Um, and that's when everything changed. Uh, I realized in that moment, I had, this was a moment of true, true, Mm. true grace in my life. This moment changed my life more than any other moment because what happened was I sort of became, I embodied a sense of self-compassion, the type of compassion that we have for other people, for myself, because I Mm. saw myself as the object that they saw them, saw me as, but, but also as a human being. And 
um, everything changed um, because I felt love for myself. And what I realized after, uh, you know, writing the book and talking to thousands of people about forgiveness is that we don't know how to feel love and compassion for ourselves. We're not taught that. Most of us aren't taught that. It's very, very rare even for parents today to purposefully teach their children how to express love and tenderness and compassion towards the self. Um, and that was the first time in my life that I'd ever felt it. I literally spent every moment that I remember, and this is obviously is not true because when we're tiny, we're innocent, but I hated myself. And that's the only feeling I knew. That's the only relationship I had with Emily was absolute contempt and hatred for myself. Uh, like I was in the way, like I was a mistake. Um, and every, that changed in that moment. Um, so everything changed. I, um, I uh, went back to the tiny um, hollowed out RV that my grandfather had put in a parking lot for me to live in. And I packed all my stuff. I went to that, that man that I'd been dating and I told him I was moving to a town other than the town I was moving to. I packed my car. Um, I went to my mom and despite, um, you know, all these years of, of lying and stealing, um, and never doing what I said I was going to do. Uh, I said, mom, I'm in, I'm in danger. I need a credit card. And she gave it to me. And that, um, that also changed my life. And, you know, I do like to say this, you know, uh, the unfortunate truth, in my opinion, is that the resources that we have make a big difference in where we end up in life. Um, and I think that really, um, and I don't, I don't talk a lot about drug policy, but I intend to more in the future. But I think that that's a really important um, thing that we need to know and that we need to accept uh, that, you know, being able to provide the basic resources that people need saves lives. Because if she hadn't done that for me, I would have been stuck in that relationship and I would have died. I would have been dead. There's no doubt in my mind. So she did that. I went to that person and said, you know, I'm leaving. And uh, frankly, that's a little bit of a miracle because the, the, the situation that I'd gotten myself into was, uh, uh, structured and organized, and I, they didn't have to let me leave, um, but he did. Wow. Um, so I left, and I um, got an uh, got an apartment, uh, found a job. I'd been, you know, to to sustain myself during those times uh, because I was really really stubborn. Uh, I would get a job and keep it for three days, and then quit. So I could go get high. So I'd get, you know, so I had literally probably 50 jobs over those years uh, because you can always go into a gas station or a restaurant and, you know, get a job doing something just to make 40 bucks. And then you've got enough gas money to, to get from, well, it, I take that back. You can't always do it, but I was able to pull it off most of the time. So, um, but I got a job and I kept it uh, and it was, you know, a more real job. It was a hostess at a restaurant, at a restaurant, but whatever, you know, it was a place to start. Right. And uh, I started focusing on uh, some really basic principles, um, finding principles, learning what principles were, learning what integrity was. I literally had no idea what integrity meant until this point in my life. I started studying spiritual and religious texts, um, the big book. Uh, I started uh, attending a spiritual community that uh, was a reflection of who I believed I was and my 
as a result of my mystical and spiritual experiences, I had a pretty good understanding of that at that at this point. And one of the biggest things is I started being a service man. I realized that all of my suffering was a result of the preoccupation that I had with myself. I was mm. always thinking about me, you know, what was wrong with me and what was wrong with me in relation to the world. And when I stopped doing that, when I started focusing on helping other people and helping the communities around me, life got a lot more manageable. And it's still one of my core principles today is, you know, try to suffer when you're not preoccupied with yourself. It's it's not actually possible. You know, we might we might be of service in environments that, you know, I, I volunteer at at the local jail here. And that's, you know, that's a, an environment where people are suffering. But being of right. service in those environments isn't suffering right? You're creating space for other people to recognize that they're not alone. And that's a gift. That's not suffering. All the suffering is about when we're thinking about us. So those are, you know, that's kind of how my recovery started is, um, you know, focusing on being of service and finding a spiritual community and studying. And, and then I started systematically forgiving everyone in my life, uh, including myself. Um, and, you know, people say, why, why did you do that? And I say, cause I tried everything else, you know, how, 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 what I know from the book. And the answer is, I know it. The reason I did it is because I, I took death and drugs off the table and I had nothing left. I still was, you know, people think that was a good time in my life. It was the most painful part of my life ever <laughs> because I was, because right. I was still suffering and I had no way out. Um, uh, and I was functioning, trying to function in the world and trying to figure out how to be in the world. You know, when, when you're that, that far gone, you know, basic things like, you know, I would get in my car and I would just start driving, you know, I would have a plan and then I would just end up doing something completely different. People don't understand how crazy the mind gets, you know, just, you know, I, I made a rule, you know, even if I had to write it down, where are you going and why are you going there? And, and then it was a rule. Okay. That's what I'm going to do. You know, it was, you know, and if I broke the rule, then I, <clears throat> then I took note of that. And I said, no, you're going to do what you say you're going to do. And it was really, really, really basic at the beginning. You know, for me, the two most powerful things I did uh, was I started paying attention to what was going on around me in a really intense way. Because when we do that, then I, this is while I was still using. When we do that, we start to recognize what our real options are. Because there aren't any people around us that are living outside of those options. You're not going to be the <laughs> exception, right? <laughs> <laughs> so your life is going to look like their, their lives, you know, those are your options. Uh, so I started paying really, 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 really close attention to my options and, you know, you know, what was really, what life was really going to be like. And I just really allowed myself to get super present to that, uh, before I left the life. Um, yeah, and the second one I'm, I'm I'm drawing a blank on right now, but it'll come to me in a second. <laughs> yeah, I'm on I'm pins and needles here. Yeah, <laughs> and the second one is yeah, I can't remember right now. <laughs> so, uh, well, can I ask you real quick? Yeah. Um, there is a process. Everything has a process. Yes. Uh, you said you systematically started to forgive everyone around you, um, including yourself. Yeah. Uh, did you find that you needed to forgive yourself first? 
before you started forgiving people or did you start forgiving people and then realize that you needed to forgive yourself? You know, how does that work? You know, um, I started forgiving other people first. Uh, I started specifically, you know, um, my mother. Uh, there's a primary relationship outside of ourselves uh, that is the reason we do the things that we do, period. Um, you know, it's very, very rare that that's not the case. And it could be something as silly as you really felt vulnerable when you were three and you asked her not to go to dinner and she went anyway, right? It doesn't have to be trauma. People say, you know, what do you, what do you need to forgive? And you need to forgive the things that caused you harm, not the things that the world says caused you harm, the things that you know caused caused you harm. And that doesn't mean that it was intentional. You know, a lot of the things that we forgive in life, uh, the other people have no idea about that it ever even happened. But those moments happen in our lives. Uh, forgiving people, the people in our lives for the actions that impacted us. Um, and I believe that it's important to start with that relationship because if we start with self-forgiveness, what ends up happening a lot of times is we beat ourselves up more because self-forgiveness requires that we're brutally honest with ourselves. And it's really hard to be brutally honest with yourself until you've cultivated a little bit of strength in the area of compassion and empathy and self-love and self-care. And so if we can start to heal uh, our relationship to our relationships. And let me just say what I, what I mean by that. Forgiveness is not about the other person. And this is a big distinction between making amends and forgiveness. Um, I forgave my mother and everyone else in my life, and they didn't know about it until I wrote the book. Mm. And, and let me just say this, our relationships changed fundamentally uh, in major, major ways as a result of me forgiving and I never said, I forgave you. Because what do, what do you hear when somebody says, I forgive you? You hear, well, I did, I screwed up, you know, you, you, you're judging me for something, right? Usually that's what we hear. Unless you're in a relationship where you're working together on that healing process, and even then the forgiveness happens in, within us. Uh, I don't encourage people to have that conversation because it can cr take away our power, you know, we have the power to heal our heart and our relationship to our relationships. And that's where our true power is. You know, why did my, why did the relationship with my mother change when I forgave her if I never said anything to her? It changed because I stopped showing up as an asshole. Right. 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 I, I stopped showing up with judgments about her. And eventually, with time, her defenses dropped and she was able to just be her. And now I can love her just the way she is, and she can feel safe in that. And that's been true for all of my relationships. Well, it sounds like in the process of making amends, so you're, you're mending the relationship by changing your behavior. So you've changed mm -hmm. your behavior because your outlook, your perspective has changed towards the individual. In this case, it's your mother. So mm -hmm. you forgive your mother, you and so you look at her differently. And when you look at her differently, you act differently, correct? Yeah. So right. in a sense, the relationship changes because you changed your behavior around her. Mm -hmm. And expectations, you know, sometimes people don't change, right? Like her, the, the behaviors that she had, that she had that I resented, she still has. Yes. What, what changed is the way I related to them, right. the way I related to her. And, and that is in large part due to a change in expectation. 
and realizing that other people's lives are not about us. None of them, not our kids, not our parents. We're all living our own lives and we're all the center of our own universe. And we should honor that. Like, why, why do I get to be the center of my universe and I need to be the center of hers too? That doesn't make sense. No, but this is something that needs to be discussed and something that people need permission to feel that way. Because you're so intertwined between the relationship between your mother or your father or your sister or, you know, whoever it is that it it sometimes becomes very difficult to know where the separation lies or Mm -hmm. where the guilt, you know, where you don't need to feel guilty for feeling a certain way or acting a certain way or saying a certain way or protecting yourself. Because like you said, protecting yourself. Yeah. No one around you is going to change. Or, or they might, but that's on them, right? As right. We, as we go along in the process and we make changes, the key statement here would be the expectations. You can't expect that just because you're changing that all of a sudden they're going to start changing. You just process it differently, right? It's not just processing it. It's truly getting to a place. And this is the gift of forgiveness, one of the many gifts of it. You, When you truly forgive, which essentially, you know, and I can give my definition of it, but on the most fundamental level, what forgiveness is, is seeing the same circumstances differently. Mm. That's it. That's all forgiveness is. It's the realization. And if you're a person of faith, it's the realization that we cannot know better than whatever that divine order is. And it's a true acceptance of the things that have happened in the past. And sometimes that gets a little sticky for people uh, intellectually because they think, well, I don't accept that. That's not okay. And you're right. It's not okay if it was happening now, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the past. And it's not rational to think that 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 something that happened in the past is not okay because it's not happening now how can it not be okay it did happen it it happened <laughs> and there's nothing that we can do to change it so it's it's you know the the mental activity of a non acceptance of what is and cannot be changed is futile yes. and it creates it creates suffering um and so forgiveness is finding our peace in that. And sometimes people get resistant to it because they think that that means that they're going to be okay if it happens now. But actually, the opposite happens. Because when we learn to forgive others and when we forgive ourselves, we create better boundaries. Yes. We're more clear about what works for us and what doesn't work for us. And those things just, we don't even hesitate. You know, would I take that kind of shit from somebody today? No, absolutely. In fact, I would never even have be that close in a relationship with somebody who had that potential. Yes. That's, uh, you know, it's not like you just end up in the middle of, you know, a war zone like that. You, you, you get there step by step. Well, in, in, the course of re- in the course of recovery, in whatever facet that is, you know, in my case, it's, you know, 12 steps and, and you've participated in 12 steps. There is those steps and there is a process. And as you go through it, these things start to happen. This awareness, this ability to turn things over, this ability to forgive, this r- ability to make amends, to relinquish expectations because we realize that having expectations. But this, all these things start to happen as the years go by and we start to learn what things work for us, what makes us feel better. 
as we as we move along in our journey because holding on to things from our past and like you said what happened happened there's no denying it what we do with that information now is the challenge yeah do we allow it to continue to wreak havoc in our lives do we hold grudges do we hold resentments do we continue to have this this armament around us where we we prevent uh, loving, uh, nurturing relationships to come in because we're still so afraid of the past? Or do we do the work that allows us to relinquish that? Yeah. I think that one of the more important things that I learned in my own recovery was everybody's another human being just like me doing the best they can. And I can't hold them to any sort of higher expectations or put anyone on a pedestal because I'm doing myself and them in disservice, correct? For me, it's about realizing that some when somebody does something that causes pain for me or for somebody else, it's they're not doing it to that person. Nobody ever did anything to hurt me. What they were really doing was acting out of the belief that they have about themselves. Mm. And that's why I that's why I did all of the painful things that I did as a parent. And we I do want to definitely talk about self forgiveness. But um, you know, when I realized that I my intention was never to hurt my son or to hurt my parents or anybody else. Um, on the on the most true level, now don't get me wrong, I thought I was trying to hurt my mother. But what I was really trying to do is like a, like a seven year old, get her attention. Mm. Um, and so I was, I was trying, um, to prove points about myself. Hurt people hurt people. That's why it happens. It's not because they're trying to hurt us. It's not, we're not trying to hurt others. We're trying to, to prove a point to ourselves to validate that we're broken to validate that we're flawed or that we're a mistake or that, you know, you know, we can't do, we can't do life on life's terms. Uh, you know, that's why we cause harm in the world. All of us, there's no exception to that. You know, the four agreements, one, the third agreement is don't take anything personally. And that's what that means. It means that it's not personal. What other people do is not about you, even a spouse, it's, it's not about you. It's if they're, it's about them. Right. And when we realize that, when we create that space, then we can allow people to just be who they are. And in fact, for me, when so, when I see somebody do something hurtful, um, or create distance, or or or, or um, 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 in you know, in relationship, I I feel I feel empathy for them. You know, I feel. Um, I feel the pain they must be feeling, or I imagine they must be feeling, uh, to, to do something um, that would be painful like that. Um, you know, you wrote the book 18 months ago, and you got clean 15 years ago. Uh, you started the process of forgiveness pretty early on in your recovery, right? Yeah, practically immediately. Okay. So there's 13 years which leaded to the culmination of, of the book. Yeah. So in those 13 years, how, how did that process of forgiveness evolve? And then what kind of a message can you give to our newcomers who are beating themselves up right now? I lost my wife. I lost my business. You know, I have nothing. You know, I'm a piece of shit. Yeah. So first, what were those 13 years, the evolutions and the transitions that you learned about forgiveness? And then what's some practical 
you know, advice that we can give to our newcomers? So the, the first question is a little bit hard to answer because, um, I mean, I can tell you, I'll tell you, I'll answer it like this. I'll tell you the process that I went through. I'll tell you the universal process that we go through as human beings when we forgive. And this was consistent with my experience. And in the book, it's outlined in eight specific steps. The first step is to realize, to get present to the, the suffering that we feel, right? And I told, well, we talked about that a minute ago. I got really, when we always do, when we first get clean, right? That's, that's where we end up is just back where we started, which is an experience of the suffering. Mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe we're not even aware of it because for many, many people, they don't realize that that's what, where they're going. That's where they're trying to escape when they start the journey, um, through addiction. Um, so the first step is just to get, to get clear on the pain that we feel. And by the way, this is the reason that most people don't truly, truly forgive because it's painful. Um, you know, forgiveness, the process of forgiveness is what it, what it essentially is, is it's a process of self self actualization. So it's movement forward uh, in our consciousness. And in the process, we are choosing consciously to move through hurt feelings, shame, anger, and resentment are the big three in favor of or in exchange for self-love, self-compassion, and empathy for other people. So it's not about letting go of the shame and the anger and the resentment. It's about moving into it. Mm. It's about it's about honoring it. It's about allowing ourselves to get present to it because what happens when we do that in the presence of love is it transforms into gratitude because we learn and we realize that we get in touch with the pain behind the pain. You know, we're not, we, we, we don't, we're not, we don't start angry. We don't start ashamed. We start embarrassed. We start sad. We start uh, feeling lonely or abandoned. You know, those very fundamental, um, tender, hurtful moments in life are where we all start. And when we, the access point to that is the anger, you know, that's mm-hmm. what most yeah. of us are is, you know, I'm, I'm really, really pissed off about life. And then we say, oh, this isn't safe. We shouldn't feel that way. But actually it is safe. What isn't safe is our evaluation of it. Everybody on the planet gets angry. So it's, it serves a purpose, right? It's a human condition. It has, it's, it has a reason to exist, it's not the it's not the anger itself. It's what we do with it that 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 has the potential to be disruptive. And what we do with it is always based on what we think about it. Mm. So I shouldn't I shouldn't feel this way. This isn't safe. You know, I, this is bad. All of those judgments that we have about how we feel are are the problem with how we feel. It's not. So when we get present to just the feeling and we stay present to it, um. That's how that's how forgiveness happens. That's how all healing happens. It happens by nurturing the pain that we feel and just being present to it in the presence of love. Yeah, there's those underlying feelings that we don't even realize, especially early on. Like you say, you know, you're angry, but you're you know, where does that anger come from? There's an underlying feeling that is, for example, hurt. You know, somebody hurt my feelings and I'm feeling vulnerable. And my way of battling that or combating that or dealing with it is through anger because that's yeah. a, a much, much more powerful approach than saying, hey, you hurt my feelings. Yeah. But once that happens, once you can connect with that, 
then the dynamic of the relationship changes. If it's somebody that cares about you, they'll be like, I am sorry, I hurt your feelings. Right. If it's somebody that doesn't care about you, they say like, don't be a sissy. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so there, that's where you can start to navigate where a relationship is going to go. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, but we're we're all a bunch of eight year olds, though. You have to realize that you're probably there's not there are not all of us, but I'm being tongue in cheek a little bit. But, you know, we have to create space by being an example um, to people about the alternative, because most people, you know, including some world leaders are, you know, they're just a bunch of little kids running around in, in, in grown up bodies and they don't have the, the, they don't have the capacity to have true emotional intelligence and to recognize that they're doing what they're doing to, to, to play out how they feel about themselves. So I think, yeah, that's true. And we also have the choice to, to be an example for the people in our lives and to create space for people to feel safe, to be vulnerable and relationship by just by being that um and of course at at a certain point if somebody uh, can't honor that and reflect it back to you then probably isn't you know in your best interest to maintain that um okay but i I, you know i I think because otherwise how do how does the world become more forgiving right you know if i if i spend my time talking to people who know how to forgive if i spend time talking to yogis and and i love yogis don't get me wrong but if i spend all my time talking to to highly evolved people about topics that they already understand then the world doesn't become a better place right um so you know you know my you know like i said um we're all exactly the same. And I'm crystal clear on that. I really, really see that. I, I, I feel it. You know, when I see somebody struggling out there on the streets, I'm with them every single time. And that's an example of being, uh, of being emotionally aware that I was talking about and of having empathy. I don't resist that. And I also don't get attached to it. So the other thing that happens is people all of a sudden, they, they, they feel the, the pain and they feel the sadness of another person suffering and they get kind of wrapped up in it. You know, it don't, you don't want to get attached to the crappy feelings. You just allow them to come and then you allow them to go. Um, so I use meditations and I have two on my website that, that create a structure for this emotional awareness where you can go into an experience of pain, experiencing trauma, and then move out of it purposefully, you know, like 10 minutes at a time every day. And then you start processing it. And it is a process. It's just like building a muscle. Forgiveness is, you know, you, you, you do the work every day, just like in the program. And, with time, it becomes a natural response. It becomes a virtue or, you know, a way of living. Uh, and that's my hope and my prayer is that that happens for as many people uh, as, as it can, because it will change the way the world works. Um, you know, if we lived in a forgiving world right now, we live in a very unforgiving world. Yeah, I was about to say that's pretty yeah. optimistic in the world we live in. You know, I've yeah. said a million times, if, if everybody was working a 12 step program, you know, things would be very, very different. Uh, yeah. but there is so much, um, self-centered fear that just governs the planet. Uh, it's, it's very difficult for these types of conversations, uh, to happen 
especially in politics or in, in business, Policy, where, yeah. you know, where it comes yeah. to, you know, the, the, the need to get things done and we don't have time for this mm-hmm. when it's time to get things done. So you, you, you disconnect from the human experience uh, um, and you move into uh, the material, uh, you know, fear and consumption, which is, you know, what the world revolves around, but that's a, another conversation too. Uh, so, so before we veered too far, um, what's some, what's some good practical advice for, for newcomers? Create some rules, your own rules, not, not, you know, the program's got rules. Yes. I, not, not rules. They've got guidelines. They've got suggestions. And that's all good. And the community that, that, that the program offers is powerful and, and, and helpful. But create your own rules. What do you need? And I'm, I'm talking real simple things like I talked about earlier. Like, you know, when, when I got in my car, <laughs> I went where I said I was going to go, you know, and that's not, I'm not, those aren't rules that uh, I was doing for somebody else. I was doing it for me because I realized that I couldn't function in the world unless I had, unless I stopped doing that. And, um, and some other rules, pay attention to what's going on around you, pay attention to what's going on inside you. Always do what you say you're going to do, you know, um, try to meditate. It's, it's, I think that these rules are really very individual, um, and that it's the process of developing them that is powerful because what we do when we reflect on what we need, um, is we get to know ourselves and if we can do that in a tender way, then we lay the groundwork for that self-forgiveness that, uh, that you, that you were talking about earlier. And by the way, self-forgiveness is the hardest type of forgiveness to do by leaps and bounds. There's no question about that. And the reason for that is because when we get, for whatever reason, when we get present to the pain that we feel, um, as a result of the pain, the, the, the hurt that we've caused in the world, it feels very sharp in the body. It feels, you know, like it's, we don't want to stay present to that type of pain. We don't want to stay present to the depth of the shame that we feel for, you know, making, uh, for hurting the people that we care the most about. Um, and so we start judging it, um, and forgiveness is about allowing ourselves to just be present to that and to respond to it with the most tenderness that you can. Um, and self-forgiveness is absolutely without question the most rewarding aspect of the process for me. It's been the most empowering um, and um, it has created space uh, for me to show up in life, uh, you know, in my skin and just be me and say, Hey, this is, you know, this is the deal. This is, this is me. This is the best version of me today. Um, and I'm sorry that, that, that happens. And, um, let's move forward from here. And I just want to say this, I think it's really, really important because what motivated me to forgive myself the very first moment, 15 years ago, um, my son came home to live with me about a year, uh, about six months after I left um, the town I was living in. Okay. And um, we had our challenges, as you can imagine. He was uh, he was angry with me, and um, what I realized was because I was supplicating and just 
you know, I'm so sorry and I love you so much and crying and, you know, just trying so hard to get him to know that I was different. Right. Um, and he's just trying to be a kid, <laughs> you know, he's <laughs> like, Oh, this sucks too. Um, <laughs> you know, and what I realized was every time I told him I was sorry, what I was saying is there's something wrong with you. That's what we're saying to the people that we love. Every time we beg and plead for forgiveness, what we're saying is, if I hadn't done what I did, you would be different and it would be better. We're making ourselves very important in that scenario. And so what I realized was I had to forgive myself so that he would know he's exactly who he's supposed to be. I don't have that much power. You know, I don't know what his journey is. I know that what happened is a part of it because it happened. Um, and what that looks like moving forward is, is up to him. Um, and that's not cold at all, by the way. If anybody hears it as cold, it's, it's exactly the opposite. It's taking myself out of his business and, uh, and honoring his humanity um, on the most fundamental level. I I never looked at it that way, you know, saying I'm I'm sorry. I learned early on that making amends and saying I'm sorry are two very different things. Yes. And you don't need to say anything. Yeah. All right. Your actions are always going to speak louder than words. So you can say you're sorry and still be an asshole. Yeah. Okay. And it means nothing. Right. right? Um it makes, but sometimes we, it makes it worse. Yes. Yeah. Uh you're a sorry sack of shit. That's what you are. <laughs> <laughs> but you know as you begin to change uh you give them their space you love them in that way you love them enough to cohabitate and let the f- the natural flow of the process impact the relationship so yeah not making it about him you know as 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 addicts we we think it's about us and it is about us it's if we're talking about, about our lives but <laughs> other people's lives even our kids it's not about us it's yes. not about us. No, I agree. I agree. This has been very informative, and I really was excited to to get you here because um, forgiveness is a is a tricky topic, um, yeah. and it's something that many of us have a really tough time tapping into, wrapping your head around, um, giving ourselves a break, allowing our uh, us to to look at ourselves as not this you know, the giant of our dreams or the dwarf of our nightmares, bringing us down to earth and allowing us to be human just like everybody else. Yeah. And saying, you know what? You're right. This this happened. What what steps do I take now so that my life is different? Mm-hmm. And the first thing I have to do is forgive myself. So um, with that being said, can you please, Emily, tell us the best way for us to connect with you, to reach out to you, your website, your book? Please tell us tell us what's the best way to find you. Okay. So um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Forgive Academy. Um, I'm also on Periscope at Pathbreak. Um, uh, I have a private Facebook group called the Forgiveness Academy. If you just go to Facebook and type in Forgiveness Academy and search for closed groups, that's uh, – uh, the best way to have daily access to me and um, other resources. There's also a public page for the book called The Power of Forgiveness Book on Facebook. So there's lots of ways to get in touch with me. My The Kindle version of my book is uh, is out now. 
and you can actually download, get a free download of the first two chapters by going to my website, which is emilyjhooks.com. It's emilyjhooks.com. And there's a, a free download. Just go in and sign up um, on the website and you can read the first two chapters of the book. And if it piques your interest, if, it, if you think it adds value in your life, you can buy it on amazon.com in both uh, paperback and Kindle edition. And the audio version will be out in September. Oof, excellent. There's plenty of us that are audio junkies. (laughs) (laughs) Total. (laughs) That's how I read all my books. I listen. Yeah, (laughs) I do do both. I really do. Sometimes I just, I drive a lot. Yeah. And speak a lot. So when I'm in the car, you know, little Course in Miracles. Yes. Good stuff. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so Emily, we have now come to the end of the show, but before we close up, I'd like to ask you five questions about your early recovery um, that you can respond with inspiring and insightful answers for newcomers. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, let's do this. Uh, So first of all, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? Um... I just wasn't ready. I didn't, uh, yeah, I, uh, I didn't believe a word of it. <laughs> I thought everybody was full of shit and I was different. Uh, I, I totally relate. <laughs> that was my first, that was my first go around. What a bunch yeah. of losers. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, I start, I, I was introduced through the courts. So, you know. Exactly. So was I. Yeah. You know, go to those meetings. I'm like, oh, great. <sighs> All right. So then number two, at what point did you have a spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? So I think we we talked about my aha moment back in, uh, I think it was 2001, uh, 2002, maybe. I can't remember now. 2002, definitely. Um, so that was, that was a moment of awakening for me, for sure. And what was it that, that happened again? Uh, I thought I was going to die. The, the guy, the man that I'd been dating tried to sell me to somebody else. And, uh, I just had a moment of grace when, uh, I felt a sense of self-compassion and love that I'd never felt before. Yes, um, that's myself. right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. one of the most powerful parts of your story. All right. Let me get back into the groove here. Um, okay. So then number three, do you have a favorite book that you would recommend to our newcomers that you had read in early recovery or, you know, books that you would recommend now? You know, I think that has a lot to do with your worldview. You know, what's powerful for you is going to be what rings true for you. Um, Eckhart Tolle was a big, a big influence in my life. The Power of Now was, uh, was a super important book in, in, in my life. The Tao Te Ching is a very powerful, probably one of the most powerful books I've ever read. So I think it really depends on, you know, what you know, what, what your fundamental beliefs are and just start there. I can tell you a a really good academically powerful book as that relates to forgiveness is called forgiveness is a choice. It's by Dr. Robert Enright. If you have to choose between that and my book, you definitely want to get my book. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. He's, he's a PhD researcher. the professor at the University of Wisconsin. So his book is very academic, but it's a great book. Um, so, and what I like about 
that book is that it, and my book does this in chapter one, but he spends a lot of time really outlining um, what forgiveness really is and what it really isn't. And that might sound fundamental, but it's absolutely important because we meet resistance. We say, I'm not going to do it because of this, because I'm condoning behavior, because it's going to happen again, and all these things, and we're confusing concepts when we do that. Beautiful, beautiful. So we have four suggestions for books, right? One of which is, of course, yours, The Power of Forgiveness. <laughs> and I would like to say this about about that. Um, I have quite a few people in my um, groups who are uh, have been in recovery for a long time. And I've heard multiple people say it is, you know, it's additive to the process. It's sort of a, a way, they, somebody called it the missing piece, and I don't mean to imply there is a missing piece, but if there was a missing piece, this the, the my book is a very additive because it's written in a very similar way uh, to the literature that uh, people in the program are familiar with. Beautiful, because that's what we need, congruency. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're not going to find, abs- you, you won't find anything that goes against that program in the book. Beautiful, beautiful. And number four, what is the best suggestion you have ever received? Uh, Shut up and sit down. (laughs) (laughs) I get that one a lot. (laughs) Shut up and listen. Um, Yeah, shut up and listen. You know, it's tongue in cheek, but it's true because I'm my own worst enemy. Yeah. You know, I really get, get quiet. Get quiet. No matter what it takes, even if it's for one second, it's, it'll be the most powerful second of your day. If you just take a minute and shift from, from being the observed to being the observer, whether that's tuning into the birds singing in the background or watching your kids play um, or smelling dinner cooking on the stove, just that one moment. That's the foundation of true recovery and healing. Beautiful, beautiful. Beautifully said. Thank you. <laughs> so number five, if you could give our newcomers only one suggestion, what would it be? Pay attention. Pay attention. Pay brutal attention. <laughs> I'm, I mean it. You know, be, you know, and what does that imply? Well, it implies that we're paying attention to the changes that are taking place. We're paying attention to how things in our experience are different than what other people say. And we're honoring that and we're paying attention to what's similar and we're paying attention to what makes us feel better. And we're paying attention to how life is changing and, you know, how much safer we feel. Um, and those moments uh, of opportunity that we didn't see before. For a lot of people, a part of paying attention is writing, um, and if that's if that's a, if that's a way to help you pay attention more, then I would recommend doing that too. Beautiful, beautiful, great suggestions, Emily. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been so much fun. It's been absolute pleasure. It truly has. You're you're a pleasure to to talk to, and I'm really happy to be a part of the show. Well, I am really grateful that you were joined us. Your story, thank you for being so candid. It touched me. It touched me. I was right there with you traveling along. You know, it's funny. Um, when you, when I look at you, I see pictures of you. I can't even imagine that person. Yeah. I can't. Right. It, it, it's so difficult 
to even imagine that person because you know your smile is electric you know so so no, thank you thank <laughs> so you it, <laughs> you're it's hard earned it's hard earned i've been charging my batteries <laughs> and it's so wonderful to see how amazing a life can just evolve so beautifully and so impactfully over the years you just become an entirely different person so again yeah, yeah that was uh, I, I i thank you for joining us so you now reach the end of our show thanks for joining us and as we say here in costa rica pura vida Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.